This is the uh, final sermon this Sunday in a series on the Lord's Prayer. We could, if we wanted to, spend easily six months on this prayer or more, but instead we've spent six sermons. And uh, there is, I, I trust, if you've had an opportunity to be present for those or to pray this prayer, you have found new ideas or new perplexities in this short prayer we call the Lord's Prayer. In Greek, it's only 57 words, and yet it has captured our imagination for 2,000 years. I want to read it twice to you today. First, the version that is most familiar to us in the church from the King James Version of the Bible, and then the version from the Bible in our pews, the New Revised Standard Version. May God bless to us the reading of this word. After this manner, therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And from the New Revised Standard Version, Jesus is speaking. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Have you ever had a moment of truth? I think you know what I'm talking about. When how you respond to the choice or the challenge you face reflects who you are and what you value. Of course you have. All of us have in small ways. We face those kinds of moments every day. But have you ever faced one of those moments at a higher level? When how you respond to the choice or challenge you face doesn't just reflect who you are, but reveals something about who you are, makes it real calls you out, demands something of you because there is something important or even perilous at stake. Now, those kinds of moments sometimes can happen maybe once or twice in a lifetime. Going into that burning building, taking a risk to build something, loving that person despite their failings, 
confessing your sin and taking action to repair what is broken, sacrificing your security for the sake of what's right, saying goodbye to someone before it's time, or maybe finally growing up. But those turning points in life don't need to be so dramatic. They can come, can't they, in, in what to most of us might just look like ordinary moments, far more trivial choices that happen all the time, even though they might be momentous for you. Like whether to take that drink or say those words, or lift that hand, or not. Do I listen or do I talk? Do I dive back in or do I leave? Do I take responsibility or do I leave it to someone else? Do I say yes to the easy way or the pleasurable way or the comfortable way when the way of love might ask more of me? Do I step out from behind my fig leaf or not? Do I say yes to God or not? Two roads diverging in a wood, fraught with opportunity and hazard, calling for clarity and sacrifice those moments shape your story, and they can feel less like a choice sometimes than they feel like a trial or a test. About a decade ago, I told you a story from this pulpit about a young couple in my first congregation near Chicago. The husband of this couple had made a small fortune before he was 30 trading commodities. With his gain, they bought a house in the country that in today's dollars would be pushing probably about five million dollars. And they began to settle in to all that this new life was offering them. Now, he missed my stewardship sermon that year, that year. but to his credit, he read it when it was published in the church newsletter that month. And he called me a few days later. Read the sermon, he said. And, I replied, well, I went outside on my front lawn. And I sat there in the grass for a while looking back at my new house. It felt like a long time. And I saw my life. I saw what has become of my values. I saw myself and I didn't like what I saw. My wife agrees with me. She says she doesn't recognize me anymore. So we put our house back on the market this week. I'm just calling to thank you. They move back to a more modest place, still nice, but more fitting, giving them more freedom within walking distance of the church, in fact. And, and they began to give more and they began to do more and they began to make a different kind of difference in the world. 
I met an Israeli man once at a peace rally in Tel Aviv. He spoke to me of a moment while fighting in a militia when he saw a frightened child of the enemy that he had been taught to hate. And in the face of that child, he saw the face of his own people, and he saw a human connection, and he put down his gun and began a journey toward peacemaking. And I met a woman once, a single mother, who had just sold her last piece of jewelry to pay for medical treatment for her sick daughter. She is the only jewel I want, she told me. I thank God that I had this to sell. But I, I don't want to romanticize those moments too much. Because we all know in our own lives that the choice isn't always so clear. And our direction isn't always so plain. We can pass the test. We can also fail the test, or we can be left confused by the test, diminished a bit, wandering, even agitated. Those kind of moments can make us, those kinds of moments can break us. So there is a reason that, in, that our word crisis has as its root the Greek word krisis which means a turning point, a fulcrum, a time of choosing. This can be a crisis as well as an opportunity. Two roads diverging in a wood. The translation of the line from the Lord's Prayer that we're reading today goes back to the King James Version of the Bible, at least the translation we're most familiar with. And as you've probably memorized it, it goes, doesn't it? Lead us not into temptation. Lead us not into temptation. Now that's not a bad thing to ask on the face of it. But you kind of should know that while it's not a bad thing to ask, it's actually not the best translation of the prayer that our Lord taught us. You might have heard it recently when Pope Francis said in 19, or 2019 that he was authorizing, in fact, a new version of that sentence for use in the Catholic Church to correct its deceptive beginning that seems to imply that God is the one tempting us to stray. Against opposition from some, the Pope now allows the church to pray, do not let us fall, rather than lead us not. But even beyond the first words of that sentence, we can also do better with the rest of the sentence too. The translation of the Bible in your pews reads, do not bring us to the time of trial. Save us from the time of trial, says another translation that's used in many modern liturgies. The New Jerusalem Bible reads this way, do not bring us to the test. 
The always insightful paraphrase of the scripture by Eugene Peterson called The Message has it this way, save us from ourselves. These are really all better translations than the one that we've been taught. Because the idea that we've translated as temptation is really much more like those moments of truth that I was just talking about. It is the kind of temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness when Satan tested his faith and Jesus chose God's truth and God's love. It is the temptation to despair that Jesus experienced when he was praying in the garden the night before his arrest, asking to be saved from the trial that lay ahead, but then praying for God's strength if what was to come was to come. It is the trial that Jesus warns his disciples about, which they can only avoid by staying awake and praying because their flesh is weak. In the earliest versions that we have of the Gospel of Matthew, the Lord's Prayer actually ends with this verse. And even to this day, many Christians throughout the world end the prayer with this verse. Gathering all of the petitions of this prayer we call the Lord's Prayer into this beautifully human, hope-filled appeal. Do not let us fall into temptation. Do not bring us to the test. Save us from the time of trial. Protect us from moments of truth. For who among us could possibly live a life in which every single moment, every decision we made, every act that we engaged in was fraught with life-creating or life-destroying peril? I know I couldn't live that way. So like the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, when we ask God to be holy, in part to remind ourselves that we aren't. So here at the end of the prayer, we say again that we aren't God and that we are as weak as we are strong. We are as afraid of who we are as we want to become who we are. We are as afraid of God as we are drawn to God at least if we're honest about it. And so we ask our creator for a life that it has more joy in it than crisis, more peace in it than demand, more acceptance than testing. Save us from the time of trial, even when it comes and save us in the time of trial, for we know we'd fail without you. You and I and us together will be tested. 
experiences and choices will reveal who we are and who we are becoming. And life will, in real ways, put us on trial sometimes. But this prayer helps us ask our Creator two things for those times. One, that by God's grace, those times won't come too often. It's a very human prayer. And two, that by God's power and our prayer, we might live in such a way that we can pass the tests when they come, again, by God's power and our prayer. And that is what takes us to the end of this verse, but deliver us from evil. The but there, but deliver us from evil, is also and. And you can pray it both ways. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. Do not put us to the test, but save us from evil. The evil that comes so close during these times of trial can feel very personal, like a lurking force to be rescued from. And so putting all of this together, this is what we are praying when we pray this line from this prayer. When we face ourselves and each other and all of the moments of life that test us, deliver us, O oh God, from all that would cloud our vision or fill our ears or consume our attention or demand our allegiance, all that would make us unable to see or hear or feel and leave us just twisting whichever way the wind is blowing. Help us to catch the wind that would carry us toward your realm, your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven and toward true freedom as we also give freedom to others and toward a modest kind of life with bread enough to share every day and toward a vision that can sense eternity even in the smallest moment. Evil can't do any of that because evil reduces our choices. Evil distorts what we see and it tempts us to fear. Evil clogs our senses and shrinks our world. Evil confuses us by teaching us to treat important things as trivial and trivial things as important. And evil distracts us from the opportunities around us to serve God's love. Evil echoes death, not life. But here, in this beautiful little prayer our Lord taught us, as you have heard it talked about, in fumbling ways these last six weeks, and as you have prayed it yourself, I hope that you can hear in this prayer that we pray a prayer not for death, but for life.
We pray for human life to be transparent to God's life. We pray for lives that are lives of abundant grace and love. We pray for lives that are textured by mercy before judgment. We pray for lives that can bear both our weakness as the creatures of clay that we are and our glory as the children of God that we are. We pray to be free and to be able to choose well. And we pray for strength beyond our, know, our own when we need it, delivered from evil. And so that exclamation that comes at its end. It was added later, but is so very right and so very natural to this prayer that it has become a part of how we pray it all the time for the kingdom and the power and the glory are yours O god now and forever amen <laughs>